Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Doing It For Bartolo. My name is June Lee. We've got a great episode for you guys this week. We have Shay Serrano, formerly of Grantland and uh, New York Times bestselling author of The Rap Yearbook. We've got him on the show this week. Uh, we had a great talk about really a lot of things. We covered a lot of ground with Shay. It was a, a pretty honest, earnest interview. And, and he, Shay talked a lot about finding his voice as a writer and, and getting started in the industry and really just kind of grinding it out. Uh, Shay you know, wasn't planning on really becoming a journalist and uh, some situations uh, led him to having to find some freelance gigs to make money. And then he, he started writing more and more and eventually ended up at Grantland. And uh, here he is today as a New York Times bestselling author. Um, she really told some really great stories and was incredibly honest about a lot of things uh, about becoming a writer and and, uh, and how he needed to improve and uh, how he grinded his way to where he is today. So, this is a, it was a really great podcast. Uh, my friend Taylor Weston, who I previously had on uh, at the end of 2015 to talk about just a bunch of r- random stuff. Uh, she, she, Taylor's a really big Shea Serrano fan, so uh, he joined us also as well in the interview. Uh, and so this is, uh, so I hope you guys enjoy a conversation with Shay. And without further ado, this is uh, our interview with Shay Serrano. Today on the show we've got uh, Shay Serrano, uh, and also on the line we have my, my friend Taylor Weston, who is uh, a Shay Serrano super fan, if I say so myself. Uh, yeah, I'd say that that <laughs> that, that might be accurate. Um, so, which so Shay, you're from? So you live in Houston now. Are you from Houston? No, I'm from San Antonio. Oh, okay, what was it like growing up in, in in Texas? It was the best. That's what it was like. It's the best state in all of the states. So. It was fun. So what, what were your uh, your sports sports loyalties growing up, other than like the the Spurs? Oh well, you know, in Texas we do a lot of horse riding and rodeo stuff. So no, uh, I, guess I was just kidding. No, you know, mostly we I just did basketball and football. I wasn't too big into baseball. It always seemed a little too slow for me. That was always my excuse, but I just was never any good at it. I couldn't hit the ball like I. It's a, it's an impossible thing to hit a baseball. Yeah, so I've been I there. Like, <laughs> it's um, way easier to catch to catch a football than a baseball. I'm out of here. I'm tired of being embarrassed. So you're, <laughs> so you're a Texans fan now, though. So what was the, what was your team growing up? A football team? I really have one. You know, you just watch. Like my dad was a big Cowboys fan. My mom was the, a Redskins fan, just because they hate Cowboys. So she did that, and but I didn't have a team like there's no there was no team in San Antonio, so I was just sort of floating around until I, I moved to Texas. I moved to Houston the same year that the Texans started, and so I was well. I have a football team now. So was was sports kind of the area where you started writing, or was was hip hop kind of the place where you started kind of getting interested in, in that kind of stuff? No, you know, I think it was actually sports was the first couple of things I wrote about, and it just grew outward from there. What kind of got you interested uh, in, in writing and, and got you started down that road? Well, I didn't, I wasn't too interested in, in writing just to write. That wasn't like a thing I wanted to do or I, I had never enjoyed writing, but we needed, my wife and I needed extra money. And so I was trying to find, like, another job. I was working as a teacher at the time, and I couldn't get a job, like a part-time job at these places I was applying because they said, well, you already have a full-time job. We can't hire you because we don't know if you'll be available when we need you. So I was just having a lot of trouble finding a part-time job. I needed something I could do from home. So I just I literally Googled work from home uh, on the computer, and writer was one of the things that came up, and I was like, all right, and I'm a writer now. <laughs> just how to dot com basically yeah so was was um so when you when you started writing did you kind of have any sense as to what you wanted your voice to be or or what kind of things you wanted to write about what kind of perspective you could bring to to writing in general no man i didn't know any of that i didn't think about any of that all i was thinking was here's a way for me to make some money all i got to do is write some stuff and people will give me money <laughs> so let me write some stuff. And it just grew from there. Like, it grew way faster than I thought it would. And it just I just kept on doing it and kept working out. 
So, what what is the timeline for this? So when do you, when did you start writing? I started writing around 2007. This is around the time my sons were born, <clears throat> and my wife wasn't able to go back to work. She originally she was going to just stay home for a couple months and then go back to work, but she ended up having some complications in her pregnancy and all this crazy stuff was going on. And that's what I started writing because I saw, okay, well, she can't work right now. We need more money. I started writing for those few months before and before the babies came. And then the babies came and then like the, you know, the six or seven weeks passed and then a couple more weeks passed. And each week I was able to make a little bit more money. I said, well, you know what, let's see if we can figure out how to do this. Like she enjoyed being at home taking care of the kids and and we were able to do it financially so we said all right well let's just see how long we can do it and and it just kept growing bigger and bigger like 2008 you're making a little more money but you know 2009 we had made up the difference in the total income of her being a teacher by 2000 you know it grows like that so it started in 2007 and then you just you know shake bushes until you find jobs until until they start coming to you did you think you were you were any good at writing when you when you first started out? Oh, it's horrible. I didn't. I and and I don't mean like just as a style. Like I didn't know how to write. I didn't know where when I was supposed to use a comma. I was just putting <laughs> commas anywhere. I didn't know how to do like quotes from people. I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't have any sort of background again in any of this. I was just doing it, and my wife. Laramie, she she was like she had some writing experience and she's really, she's way smarter than I am so she was editing all of my stuff and like showing me what I was doing wrong and then I was working with different editors who were doing the same thing so now, yeah I was really really bad in the beginning it, but it wasn't the thing about are you a good writer a lot of times it's just are you a dependable writer mm-hmm. and I never uh-huh. turned anything in late and I always had ideas I wanted to pitch and if somebody told me no it didn't bother me. If somebody wanted to edit a thing I wrote, it didn't bother me. I was just, like, I'm just going to keep taking uh, steps, step after step after step, until I figured it out. What were some of the, the biggest lessons you learned from going through that experience? Just, uh, you know, learning how to write and um, learning how to use commas. What, what was the biggest takeaway from that for you? <laughs> learning how to use commas. Biggest, yeah, the biggest takeaway was the commas, of course. <laughs> I think after that, the main thing that I learned when I was going through all of that stuff was, like, if you want to do a thing, just do the thing, and that's how you get to do it. Like, nobody was just beating down my inbox trying to get me work in the beginning. It wasn't a thing like that. Like, you have to go get it. And it applied to, like, everything. And I think I've always sort of been this way where if I wanted to do a thing, I I didn't worry about if I had experience or not. Like, I just wanted to try to do it. It was the same thing when we did a, I did a coloring book. I had never done anything like that before. I'd never drawn on a computer. I'd never done any sort of book. I just said, okay, well, I'm going to do this thing. And then you figure out how to do it. And, and if you go at it that way, then you're either, A, going to figure out how to do it, or B, you're going to realize you're, you're not that good at this and then try something else. Did you have any sort of sense of aspirations when you started out writing do you have any end goals at the end of the day the only goal i had when i very first started was i need to make this much money each month so we can pay these bills that's all it was and and i think if for me anyway when i was i was approaching it in that fashion it makes things a lot easier there's no like this romantic backstory about me sitting in this coffee shop with like a black turtleneck on typing <laughs> away on my laptop like it wasn't it wasn't a thing like that for me all i knew was that the car bill the car note comes on the 15th and i need to have 453 dollars to pay it and then the other bill comes on this day and, and i know i need this money on this time so i'm just trying to get to that point where i can pay those things that was the only aspiration after you start figuring it out, then you're like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, it would be neat if I wrote, you have a list of places you want to try to write for, and you're checking them off that way, but not in the beginning, though. Did that, like, did that maybe, maybe, uh, sense of desperation in, in terms of, like, 
getting getting making sure that you need to get that uh, hit a certain money threshold every single month. Do you think that that helped improve your writing in any way? I think so, yeah, because you have to get good at it if you want to be good at it. And that sounds like a silly thing to say, but that's the way it works. Like if you want to make more money, then you got to be good, so get good. And so you have I like I'm reading books on how to on how to write. I'm researching these different things. I'm trying to find writers who are successful in these same fields I want to be in, and I'm reading how they write. And, and, and you have to do, you know, it forces you to figure things out when you know what your end goal is. Who who but, are, who were some of the writers that you were looking at? Uh, there were a few different people. I, I can remember when I first started out. Um, as far as like books and stuff go. The very first book I, I, I remember buying when I wanted to be a writer, I realized I w- it was a thing I was going to try to chase down. I bought this book by Chuck Klosterman. Uh, I think it's called Chuck Klosterman 4 or something like that. And it was a bunch of, like, the, it was broken into sections, but one of the sections was a bunch of, of profiles he had written, and that was a thing I was interested in doing. So I saw the book, I, I said, okay, let me get this. And then I ended up liking it, and so I checked out his other books and stuff. Uh, there's a guy named Rob Harvilla who, when I very first started writing, around like the first year or so, he wrote this article in the Village Voice about memes. He had a song called This Is Why I'm Hot. And it was like this graphical dissertation of the song. And it was incredible. I didn't know you were allowed to write like that or make these sorts of jokes in the writing. And that was really like a big moment for me. Um, Chris X, is he was like one of the big rap writers a while back and he's still around now he just pops up every once in a while but he was really good um jessica hopper i mean you know all, all the big people who are in the music or, or sports things are the people you're i was reading them and you know you're just finding those types of people i just want to say that that like it, for us, I think for me in June and for a lot of like our friends who who would listen to this, that's like such an encouraging and like such an awesome, awesome narrative. Because like I think writing so often is thought of as as like one of these like like being a professional writer is like like being a professional athlete or something like that. Like like you're just born with it and like you just like at, at a certain point you like kind of learn how to flex it or something. But like uh-huh. it, it, like at this point, it's like. You're, like you're naming those names. Honestly, I don't know who like any of those people are. But like for for us, it's like like our list is like Shea Serrano and Bill Barnwell and like people like that. So it's just like right. Like it's like crazy to me to just like think like like it's just such an awesome story. And I think it's so cool that it kind of goes against the grain of like the typical the typical narrative for writing as like this pretentious like you gotta be you gotta be the next like novelist in the coffee shop with the black turtleneck. Right, like that's right. Just, that's no, just man, such a crazy thing to me. Yeah, it ain't like that. I mean, it can be. I'm sure there are instances where that sort of stuff happens, but it doesn't have to be. And it, I mean, just go do it. So, what was what was the first piece that you you wrote? Oof, I don't even. Remember. Oh, you know what? The first thing I wrote that I got paid for was was a thing about a Texan. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I, I had. There was a there was a there was a time around two thousand six or seven when I started reading these different blogs, and I said, "Oh, I could I think I could do something like this." And so I made one, and it was like this rinky dink little thing on Blogspot, and I wrote two whatever, just two articles about just I don't even remember what I was writing about. It was it was dumb stuff. It was like really dumb, just not fun stuff. But um, I wrote a thing. And I drew some pictures of, like, in Microsoft Paint, and I posted it about, like, Helen Keller at a charades party or something like that. <laughs> like, something ridiculous like that. And, but I, and I didn't know what to do with it or whatever, and I sent it. I was just emailing to whoever's email address I could find. I would just go, like, on Deadspin, and they had the addresses listed, and I would email these people. Or on, on a True Hoop. ESPN had a, a basketball site called mm-hmm. True Hoop. And the guy who ran it, Henry Abbott, his email was on there. And so I sent him a thing. And, like, I'm just sending it out to people like that. And then I got an email back from Henry uh, at ESPN. And he's like, it said, hey, this is this is really funny. If you do basketball stuff, send it to me. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, this is a guy from ESPN who this is his whole job. And he's telling me that this is good. So maybe 
I'm onto something here. So like, I made up some basketball stuff real quick and sent it to him. And he posted it on the site. And then from there, this lady in Houston who runs a little tiny, like a neighborhood newsletter type thing, hit me up and said, asked if I could write about it. She said, I saw your thing on, on ESPN. Can you write some sports stuff for my little paper? I'll pay you $15 or something goofy like that. <clears throat> 25 bucks or whatever. So I said, all right. And then it was like a once-a-month thing. And uh, the first thing I did was for the Texans. And I still have a copy of it. I put it in a frame and everything. It's really, it's really bad. Like it, when I read it now, it's so bad. <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, what, I mean, over the course of you getting more and more writing experience and having editors take chances on you as as an up-and-coming writer, how did you see your voice develop and, and uh, how did you go about thinking about how you could make your voice uh, a unique presence on, on whatever platform you were writing on? You know, you know what I think ends up happening is I think just the more you do it, the more confident you get and the more willing you are to, to take chances. In the beginning... You're reading like these different writers. You're trying to sound like these other writers, and and that's just that's just the way it works. <clears throat> After a while, you're like, well, let me try to do like I want to do something a little bit different. You can only go so far copying somebody. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, you'll never you'll never be better than the person you're trying to copy, basically. So, you know, as as the years are going on or the the assignments are going on, you get into different editors who are allowing you to try different things, and you just are. Uh, I'm I'm starting to plug in. Phrases or terms I would otherwise think wouldn't be acceptable and seeing what, what they let me get away with and don't let me get away with. and You just sort of grow from there. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the the main trick I figured out for me in trying to get this stuff to sound how I want it to sound is before I would write anything, I had, like I had the main idea in my head, I need somebody that I could sit down and, and talk it out with. And then after I have this conversation where I'm explaining what I want to write in the story, Two things end up happening. Number one, the person, the other person is going to ask some questions from an angle that I had not considered before, and I'm going to take that and I'm going to put it in there, and it's going to make it a little more round, a little more fulfilling. Uh, and also, when I'm typing it up now, all I'm going to do is take this conversation I just had and type it up like exactly as I remember having a conversation. And now it's going to give the give the writing this effect where it sounds like I'm having a conversation with the reader. Mm-hmm. It makes it more natural you know I, I kept getting into this thing where i would read uh, a book by somebody and I'm, i would try to sound like them or i would try to like i'm on thesaurus.com entering all my words i'm using trying to sound smarter than i actually was and it was <laughs> it just didn't feel it felt it felt wooden the writing felt wooden it mm-hmm. felt great it didn't feel like i wanted to feel once i started doing this thing where i'm talking it out then it, things started to flow from there there's that scene in Friends where uh, Joey is writing a letter for Monica and Chandler for their adoption agency, and Joey uses a thesaurus for every single word, and it eventually just becomes like a bunch of gibberish because it doesn't make any sense yeah. in context. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was it's that it basically. Like when you're writing, you you can't try to sound like what you're not because it doesn't work. Right. All the best writers, that's what they. If you talk to them in person, that's what they sound like. If you talk to Bill Barnwell, he makes these same sorts of. His his talking has the same pace as his writing does. Same thing with like a Zach Lowe or a John Abrams or Molly Lambert. Like you can hear it when they're talking to you when you're reading that piece. Was there a moment for you, or maybe just like a a, a series or a course of time um, after you started writing, where you feel like you kind of started to hit a, a breakthrough point in terms of finding what you wanted your voice to sound like? No, I don't. I still don't feel like. I mean, I know I have this, people ask me the same question all the time. I know I have this sort of tone or whatever one in the writing that people like or don't like, but it it never feels like you're where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Everything you write, everything I write anyway, I write it, I turn it in. Right before I send the document over, I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever written. It's the best thing that anybody has ever written. Nobody's f***ing with this. And then I send it. And then it, it runs, and like a week later... I read it, and I'm like, this is awful. Like, I can't believe I wrote this. I never need to write like this again. I never feel, for me, it never feels like I'm where I'm supposed to be, or where I should be anyway. Mm -hmm. Where did you think you were as a writer when you first started contributing to Grantland? I thought I was at the bottom. 
that's uh, you know, that's an intimidating place to show up for work because you've got all the best writers in the country who are who are writing over there, and to be just a part of that is that when your first day it's like this really scary scary thing I think I was I mean I knew I was a little bit good I felt like I was good I was I was making enough money and I feel like you're worth whatever people are paying you so I gotta be okay at this and then you start there and it's like well now I'm at the bottom and now I'm gonna try to work work my way up to the top of the Grantland rankings so when so when you uh, how did how did the whole Grantland thing come about for you I, I know uh I mean, uh, I, I've talked to Jay Jay Kang about this a couple times, and how he, you know, found a bunch of the initial writers as as one of kind of the first editors for the website, and that's how they kind of got their in there. How was that process like for you? For me, I had, you know, I, this was maybe 2012, I think, or 13, something like that. I Granlin had been around for a couple years, and maybe two years or something like that. Everybody had heard about Granlin, and all the writers wanted to write, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of writers wanted to write there. It was this, it was this really popular place. And I never, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't have any sort of tie that way that I could lean on. So I never thought to pitch them. You know, I, I, it was like, like it was to me it was the same as saying, oh, I'm going to go trial for the Spurs. Like, you can't just walk on and do that at that level. So I, I didn't have any thoughts about doing that and I, I was working at the time I was writing this weekly column for LA Weekly and it was like a syndicated type of thing so it was going through all the village voice papers but I wrote an article there and Molly Lambert who was the staff writer at Grandland she saw it and uh, I guess she liked it so she sent it to her people over there and then she hit me up that way and said hey we saw this thing that you wrote and we want to see if you have any interest in writing for Grandland and it was like Boom, there you go. I still have a picture of that message. I took, I took a screenshot of it. I remember I still have it on my phone to this day. Was it intimidating for you to, to step into this writing institution that was you know, garnering a, a very high, uh, was very highly regarded among people in, in the pop culture and sports realm? Um, what was that like for you? Yeah, it was intimidating. It was scary. It, was, it didn't feel real until I... They flew me out to L.A. to, like, meet everybody. And then that was, like, an overwhelming experience. Because before then, it's just, I'm just sending an email to another place now, like a different person. Right. And so you sort of have to just squint a little bit and not pay any attention to it and go from there. Well, when you show up to the office or when you meet Bill Simmons or, or Dan Fierman or Zach Lowry and these guys, um, it's like, oh, shit, this is real. What was that first day like for you? What 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 do you remember from that day? I remember I remember the first time I saw Bill Simmons when he walked in the office. You know, I, you if you're a writer, you 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 read him, and I was reading him before I was even a writer, so that was like a big thing for me. I remember they had called us all out there. It was for the they would do a big meeting before each basketball season, before each football season, and everybody sits around this big wooden table. And they have sandwiches and drinks. And you pitch your ideas about stuff you want to do for that season. And so I'm in there, and Bill Simmons is there, and Jonathan Abrams is there, and Jason Conception, and Andrew Sharp, and Zach Lowe. Like, all of the guys are are in there. Uh, and it's just like, it was like a crazy thing, you know? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that was a big moment for me because it felt like, okay, like, I'm supposed to be a part of this. I didn't feel like I was a part of it, but I felt like I was supposed to be. Like, that's why they had me in there. It was just this cool thing. What was that real? What, what did that realization mean to you? Being in that room with all of those, you know, these great writers and Bill Simmons and being a part of this this thing that was kind of um, working towards this, like, this very great journalism, you know, media goal. What, what was, uh, what did that mean to you kind of realizing that? I've, more than anything else, it just felt like validation. It felt like the stuff I was trying to do was valuable. And that's like a big boost to your confidence. Now, at, again, at the same time, I'm sitting in there and I know, I feel like if we put all these guys in order, I'm at the bottom. And then I'm, I'm we're pitching ideas and there's, there's all these super smart people are in there and they're going and they're 
they're pitching their stuff, the things they want to cover. I think I'm I'm literally sitting next to Zach Lowe. Zach Lowe's on my right. <laughs> Zach Lowe's the best basketball writer in the country. And I know this and everybody else knows this. And so he pitches his ideas and then I have to go after him to pitch mine. <laughs> I'm the last person to go. This is like I have to I have to do my shooting practice after Steph Curry does his shooting practice. Like I just feel like a more Zach Lowe sends out like just with the greatest of ease, eight amazing ideas for stuff that he wants to do for the season. And then it's my turn, and I'm like, yo, what about if we do a basketball tournament and we only, and it's like only white basketball players? <laughs> or what about, what about if we, let's, fake, let's film like a fake commercial where, you know, the sad adoption puppy commercials, like let's do that, but with free agents. And like, there's just the dumbest things you could think of. And they're all laughing, and I'm not certain yet if they're laughing at my ideas or if they're just laughing at me. So it was like, it just felt. I mean, it's a weird feeling, man. Mm-hmm. How do you think? How do you think your your experience, um, uh, kind of growing up as uh, as a as a Mexican American and being in Texas? How do you think that has kind of shaped your your voice and your perspective on sports and hip hop? Uh, I don't know. I, you don't really think too much about it when you're like I don't wake up in the morning and go like, "Well, it's another day of me being a Mexican." <laughs> it's just it's just the existence. I know it's not any different than than anything else. I think more than anything, it's it's where you're growing up as far as like the level of socioeconomic status that you have mm-hmm. that is 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 more impactful than anything else. Like. If I had grown up as a rich Mexican, I don't imagine that's too much different than growing up as a rich white person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with being poor, like we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and that's just that. That more than anything shapes the the experiences you had because now, like, there's a time where we're living in a, in a three bedroom house and there's like fourteen of us in there, and like that, you know, you have these weird experiences that way. Um, there's some culture stuff that 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 you have that ends up shaping the, I think it's just more than anything else, the things that you write about or the references that you draw on. Like mm-hmm. if I make a, I could talk about Selena or I could talk about the Kukui or Ojo or any of the, I mean, these sorts of things that maybe other people don't know about. Um, but you, I don't think too, too much about it. I think it shapes the stuff you talk about more than how you talk about it. So when you're at Grandland and uh, you're you're pitching things uh, in in meetings next to Zach Lowe and um, you're writing f- with this with this a uh, great team of editors and uh, what did you kind of learn about yourself as a writer going uh, being a part of that staff? Uh, I learned that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was, and that's basically it. I <laughs> mean, you you're working with I'm working with. Sean Tennessee, and he's like the music editor at the time. And so I write a piece, and I turn it in, and he makes like just two or three little changes. Small stuff I had never considered. A word here, a sentence, remove a sentence and place it somewhere else. And it changes the whole tone of the piece, and it's a thousand times better. Mm-hmm. And so it's cool to, to like work with, with people like that. Um, it just helps you become better at, at, at what you're doing. Um, you have to get better. If you don't get better, then you're just going to fall apart and your whole confidence and everything's going to crash into the ocean. And so, I mean, you know, I'm not sure what, what to say. That I just felt not smart. That's how I felt when I was working at, at Grantland when I started. And then the longer I was there, the smarter I felt. As you as you continue to, to try to get better, how do you keep yourself, uh, not necessarily motivated, but... Um, how, how do you keep pushing yourself to get better? Um, how do you go about doing that for you? For me, I'm I'm very, I'm a very petty person. So if I see like other people who are doing well, I want to do better than they're doing. If I see somebody who wrote a really good thing, I want to write a thing better than that person wrote. And so I have like these one-way competitions with a bunch of different writers. People who I know aren't competing with me, but I'm, like trying to compete and be better than than they are, um, like that's just how I try. That's how it works for me. I just I need, I, oh, you know sorry. what I'm saying. I work, it works that way. 
Oh yeah, I don't I don't even think you're being petty though. Like I think I think that's just like I think you need that, you know? I think it's almost necessary to just like create those competitions and and just like cuz like how how can you like how can you put yourself higher without having that kind of like that little nagging voice in the back of your head that like you need to be better than other people, you know? It's like it yeah. it sucks and it's like you think about it and you're like, "Oh, man, I'm like a person for this." But like really, I think I think everyone has it and I think the I think people who can can like really harness it like that and like and actually turn it into something that's like productive and and really start writing because of it. Like I think that's like a beautiful thing. Well, I, I, yeah, that's a positive way to look at. It. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, it's just I just want to catch some people. I want to be better than some people, and I and I'm not right now. Molly Lambert is like a genius, and every time I read something she writes, it's like. Man, I need to start all over. <laughs> same thing with same thing with 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 uh, Chris X again. He, his writing is just uh, he writes in a way I can I will never be able to write, but but I want to and I want to beat I want to beat him. I want to beat I want to be better than Kara Brown. If she's way better than I am, I want to be better than Chris Ryan. And I get I mean I got a list of people in my head who I want to be better than. At, at what point do you think it like? Was that always there? Because you like obviously we've talked about that you that it started being like a like it was to get checks, you know. But like, do you think it like there was a certain point where it really became about the writing and really became about like being the best writer you could be and like and like being better than those people, you know? Uh, I you know what I I can remember since I've been a little kid wanting to be better at stuff than other people. And not being better than them, and like that being a, a force that just pushes you. Uh, I don't remember exactly when it happened with writing. I think maybe after I realized I was going to be able to make a career of it mm-hmm. is when that change change happens. But yeah, I mean, never since I was little. I remember I had a cousin who came to live with us. His name was Brian. He was an older cousin, and he was like the cool cousin in the family. And he was taller than me, and he was more handsome than I was. He was better at everything than I was. He was—I I think he was like two years older than me, if I'm not mistaken, two or three. And so he came and lived with us, and we had a basketball goal at the time. And now, if I'm playing basketball with my friends, my other seventh and eighth grade friends, I'm better than all of them. I can mm-hmm. beat all of them. But now he shows up, and he—and he lived with us for like you know six months or something. And he just spent those six months kicking the shit out of me in basketball every day. Like I would never ever beat him. I couldn't. I just couldn't. He was too good. He was unstoppable. When uh, I mean, I'm in eighth grade at the time or whatever. He's a tenth grader, and he just was. He shot it too well. He dribbled too. He's too strong. I just couldn't beat him. So every day for those six months, he just we would go outside and he would beat me ten games in a row, and then go inside, and I'm just getting madder and madder. My whole. I mean, this is my whole childhood growing up. And I remember we. He moved out. Whatever. I never got to beat him. I came back home in college, and. Uh, I, we were hanging out, we played basketball, and I finally beat him, and it was like the best feeling. This was years and years afterwards, and he probably didn't even remember any of this. But, <laughs> yeah, ever since I would, I've been little, it's just been it's been like that. When, uh, How do you think that, that – it feels like you have a, a bit of a chip on your shoulder then. How, do you think that fuels you – I mean, <laughs> how, how does that influence your writing? Uh, I don't think it influences writing. I think it just influences the work ethic. It just makes you want to work harder. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know if it's a chip on the shoulder. I guess you could call it that. I don't know, man. I just know I'm not good. I'm not as good as other people, and it, and it hurts my feelings. And so I want to do something about it. I I don't know, man. I would argue that that's like. I think that's more of like a a cultural problem within like I mean I guess like we call let's call writing like part of like academia or something like that like it's it like I guess like in a lot of ways you could call it artistic well, I mean whatever you want to label it but like I think there's kind of this problem that like stuff that's for like the common man stuff that's relatable you know like your your writing isn't full of a bunch of thesaurus words that we all have to be like oh shit, what's this guy saying like you know, like this, right? Your writing doesn't make people feel uncomfortable when we read it. Like, sure, I don't know about rap compared to you, so like, 
because I'm a little bit like that. I'm like, oh, like maybe I gotta, maybe I gotta get some context, do some research so I can actually read this effectively. But like, I, I just don't think it's, it's any worse. I think it's like, uh, I think it's just like a whole other arena that's, that's just as valuable on its, on its own, you know? Right, right. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's it? Just pouring my heart out? <laughs> No, I get it. I, I understand. Um, so, what, what what are some of the experiences that you had at Grantland that you couldn't have, uh, at the beginning, maybe even imagined of, of having uh, when you were just kind of first starting off as a writer and learning how to, to use commas and, and, and figure out grammar? <laughs> some experiences? Um, I would say, you know, there, was a, there were times where these, you'd have these different people who you look up to and they would pull you aside and tell you like you're doing a good job. Like that, that's a big thing. If, if there's somebody who, who you admire and they say, Oh, this thing you wrote was really good. Like that's a, I remember those sort of situations happening and it, it just means a, a whole, whole bunch. So every once in a while that would happen and it's just a cool thing, man. Who Who are those people for you? Basically, any, any anybody there, anybody at Grantland, if you got an email from, if I got an email from someone at Grantland, it felt and it was a nice thing, then that was a a big day for me. I got you know, if you get an email from from Dan, he was like the second in command there, mm-hmm. and I did, you know, I don't have too much correspondence with him after after like he arranged me to work there. He wasn't a direct editor for me on maybe by like two of my pieces or something like that. But if I got a message from him, it was like, oh, shit, that's cool. Or if I, if I got a note, I turned in the thing to Mark Lasanti, and then I hear back later on, hey, you did, this was really good. I changed this to this, but this is really good. Like, that's cool, man. I got an email from Holly Anderson about a thing I wrote. Like, that's, it's, it's cool. And it's different, I think, maybe because I live in Houston, and most of these guys are in L.A. or New York, and they're together. Um, so it's different for them, but... Like I remember those little those little tiny things were were big for me. Do, do you think that was that was kind of part of the culture of Grandland? Because from from the outside, and as someone who read the site on a consistent basis and and listened to a lot of the podcasts and uh, are general are kind of generally familiar as of of the writers as as public figures, um, do you think that was something that was part of the culture there? Yeah, definitely. It was very. I wouldn't even say collaborative. As far as the writers go, but it was like, it was this encouraging thing. And you would, it was just, it was a bunch of really nice people, really smart people who were working there and who were excited about you working there as well. And they wanted, you know, if you were part of them, then they wanted you to do well. And that was a neat, a neat thing to be, to be involved with. At what, at what point had you, had you start, started planning uh, the rap yearbook? Uh, the rap yearbook, I think that started around geez, maybe early 2014, somewhere around then. Well, what was the, yeah. what, what was uh, kind of the inspiration for, for getting on that? The inspiration for getting on that was we needed money. Again, that's my main <laughs> thing <laughs> when I'm writing. That, the book was not an idea that I had. It was an, the idea of an editor. My editor, who I did the coloring book with, mm-hmm. she said, hey, this is a good idea. I think you should write this book. And she told me, let's do the most important rap song, and you pick one song per year, and you write one chapter per song, and that'll be a book. And I was like, no, that sounds awful. I don't want to do that at all. I don't want any part of that. And she said, okay, well, we'll figure something out. We can work on it later on. And then maybe a couple months later, my wife was like, okay, I want to move. We were living in a little tiny townhouse at the time. She wanted to move into a real house because we had another kid. And I said, all right, well, that book sounds like a pretty good idea, actually. Let me go on and do that book because they're going to give me a check to do it. And that was the inspiration for that. So That's simple. <laughs> um, so when, so as, you, as you're going through year after year after year, um, how are you kind of making your decisions as to, to what song to be chosen? With the book, we try to figure out which songs, again, we're trying to find the most important songs for the year. So we're looking to see were there any songs that 
signified some sort of significant change in rap. For example, in 1980, the very first rap song to have a chorus was Curtis Blows the Brakes, and that was that came in 1980. So, of course, that's the most important song of that year because now every song has a chorus in it. Uh, you try to find situations like that. What was the... What was the first gangster rap song? What was the first this or the first that? Stuff where there was like a big moment in rap where rap was not the same after that. So you're looking for either those moments or moments that signified something that was happening outside of rap that was bigger than rap that rap was able to, to contain into a song. Maybe something like Fight the Power with Public Enemy, which is a you know really big thing or um, things, things like that. A conversation that I've been having with some of my friends recently uh, is 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 just kind of thinking about the the music artists that kind of uh, transcend our generation and are more than just kind of fade in and out of the top forty. Um, and I've been making the case to a lot of people, I think, that within hip hop, um, two people who are like that currently are Kanye and Kendrick. Not that that's like a hot take or anything, but um, and and with waves coming out or whatever it's going to be called, so help me God, swish, whatever. Uh, I mean, what what kind of influence do you think Kanye's had uh, over just this generation of rappers? Because I think I think you know Drake is one of Drake's biggest influences is 808s and Heartbreak. Uh, I mean, I think how do you think Kanye's influence over music over the last you know fifteen years has permeated through throughout the current hip hop culture? Well, Kanye was the one who sort of snatched rap away from it was going back into a gangster phase. This was two thousand and. Three, Fifty Cent had come out, and Get Rich or Die Trying was one of the greatest, biggest selling rap albums of all time. Uh, he had in the club, he had all of this stuff going on, and it seemed like maybe rap was going to start to lean in that direction again. And then Kanye showed up, and he pulled it towards him. He pulled it towards this, this where you don't have to be a gangster anymore, and you can be a college dropout or whatever. You can be a smart guy. You can be this sort of stylish person, and and each album that he's put out has done something a little bit different. You mentioned 808s and Heartbreak. Yeah, that's the direct line descendant for, for what Drake ended up doing. And then, you know, what Drake did ended up changing the whole group of rappers as, as well. He just, I think he's probably, he's been the most influential the last, at least the last decade for sure. Um, he's just always making it to where you can do other things than what's being done. So and w- so with with Kanye, um, what are, what are your kind of expectations for for the next album, uh, especially with with the first two songs being dropped on, on SoundCloud? What, what are you kind of expecting from him? You know, I'm not I'm not all the way certain. I was totally wrong with 808. I didn't expect it to sound like that. I was definitely wrong with Jesus. Like each each album has felt completely different and separate from the last one but they all are sort of unified with the same themes. So he made a joke on Twitter. I think it was a joke about how this was going to be a gospel album. It very well may actually be a gospel album. If somebody was going to do it, he would be the guy who could pull it off. So I, I have no idea what, what it's going to sound like. I hope it's a new thing. I hope he doesn't. He's always been a forward-thinking rapper as far as the music goes. I hope that he doesn't start. I hope he doesn't like try to make college drop out again. Or try to make my, you know, the my fantasy album again. Like, I, I hope it's a new thing. What's your favorite Kanye album? My favorite one is probably if I all, if I was only gonna listen to one for the rest of my life, I would pick. Uh, I feel like I want to say 808 and Heartbreak, but that's probably not right. <laughs> maybe maybe. Maybe fantasy. I'll go with fantasy. I think it's the most perfect one. Yeah, I mean, like the thing that I, I remember the first time I listened to to fantasy, and I was just totally struck by not only like the the themes, the 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 huge overarching dark themes across that album, but just the just the the amount of production meticulousness that went into every single song, uh, and how it all. I think I think this has been something that's been going on uh, recently in hip hop, which like making the albums feel like one continuous message and feeling that continuity. I think that's something that Kendrick did really well in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Butterfly. Um, but, but having that sort of, 
uh, continuity throughout all the songs was something that like really struck me about fantasy. Yeah, it's really it's really incredible. I got one for you here, and okay. uh, and bear with me for a minute. <laughs> do do you think you can even name a favorite J Cole song? Me name a favorite one? No. <laughs> but can we can we can we get some can we get a context for the listeners on on why you think J Cole is terrible? Because I I've read your article um about the J Cole concert, but I I I think personally, and I think I we know a lot of people who who'd like uh like to open up the dialogue here. You know what? People ask me that all the time, just because I, I always talk about how he's not very good um the main thing with not liking j cole is that there's nothing that he's doing that is new there's nothing that he's doing that he's the best at and it's just that simple it's like i don't understand why you would pick a j cole album when there's a kendrick lamar album it just doesn't make it i don't know why you want to go to a trade basketball game when you can go watch the warriors play you know what i'm saying like, I get it. You played eighth grade basketball, too. That doesn't make it better than what the Warriors are doing. Mm-hmm. Do you, and well, it, that's really, that's all that it is. Do you think there's anything, like, anything about his kind of common man style, the, the relatability of it? or Because I remember in, in the article, you have, you have that existential crisis there where you're, where you're like, shit, maybe this actually, maybe this is kind of good, just not for me. Maybe this is kind of good. Like, do you? Do you actually think that, or do you think that's just kind of a, a concession to to kind of appease all of the, the rabid J. Cole fans? I think when you when you say somebody's a common man, I think that's just a different way of saying that they're not good at anything. That they're not really good at, they're not really good at a thing. You know what I'm saying? I, I do. Like, I do understand what you're saying. Like, yes. I get it. He's rapping about the first time he had sex. Cool. But there's never anything beyond what he's saying. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's never, it's never more nuanced than that. Like, I here's here's an example of of the way that his his music comes across to me. I watched the video for the, that song. I, I think it's called Puppy Love, if I'm not mistaken, or something like that. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's a, the dogs the whole time. Yeah. And then and then if I'm not mistaken. He throws dreams with a Z on the Yeah, with like yeah, for okay. every song on the album with a Z, yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Come on. <laughs> okay. But but so there's there's like a so I saw the video. I remember somebody sent it to me, hey, check this out. Whatever, this is you're gonna like this type of thing. Everybody always sends me all this stuff that J. Cole does because I think yeah. it's funny. And there's a part there's a part of the song where he's mentioning something about how somebody's like the dad was mad. Somebody's mad at him or at the girl or whatever uh-huh. for what they want to do. Are you familiar with this part of the song? Are you familiar with this song at all? Yeah, I, I am familiar with the song. I, I can't like okay. I can't remember the exact lyrics, but I do like yeah. I I can place that in the in the in the narrative in the complex narrative. Yeah. So so there's that part, and they're mad at him or whatever. And in the video, when they show it, when they say like he's mad at me. The video cuts to a, a a shot of a guy pointing his finger, being mad at the dog, and like that's the whole J Cole thing, in a nutshell, right there. Like he's saying it and he's showing it to you, and this is what I'm talking about. And it's just a corny thing to do. <laughs> it's just like what, like don't like. I don't like it. I'm not a fan of that. I don't. I don't need to be spoon fed. To me, I get it. I get what you're talking about. Who are some of the young guys? Said, yeah, who are some of the young guys in the game that, uh, or or just some of the newer guys who who have become popular over the last couple of years that you think are doing interesting things? Like I'm personally, I'm personally fascinated by uh, chances, uh, chance the rapper's strategy after you know dropping acid rap and not signing to a label and and then doing surf with Donny Trumpet. I mean, what is what has been interesting to you? Yeah, chance the rapper is good. I, I I'm a fan of any of these rappers who. Their music, when I listen to it, it feels to me like it's a thing that they have to get out. It's a byproduct of their existence. If you make me feel like that when you're rapping, then I'm going to like your music. Chance the Rapper makes me feel like that. He makes me feel like this is a thing inside of him that has to come out, 
and that's all there is to it. And so it's good. It's good to me. Um, as far as other new guys, there's a group out of Dallas named The Outfit Texas, and their music makes me feel the same way. It makes me feel like this is a thing that they need to get out, and they're not explaining anything. They're just making it, and it's really great. There's a, a, a young guy in Boston. His name is Cousin Stiz. Oh, yeah, oh, we were going to bring up Cousin Stiz. <laughs> and his music, when I listen to it, it feels it feels completely natural, and it makes me feel like he's not doing anything except what his heart is telling him to do. He's not sitting there going, oh, I should have a song on here about the first time I had sex. Ooh, I should have a song on here about the first time that this happened. Ooh, I should have a song. Like, it just doesn't feel like that when I listen to him. He has a song, and it starts out, and it says, I'm the f***ing Fresh Prince. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I've had that feeling before. I understand this thing. Like, I, f- I can hear the emotion in his voice. This is great. So I, I got a follow-up question, actually, on my J. Cole question. Did your cousin, okay. did your cousin who, Brian, I think his name was, who was really good at basketball, have, like, a fro or something and, like, a goatee, and he was really lanky? <laughs> no, you know what? He had, he had, somehow he had red hair. He's the only one in the whole family he had red hair. A Mexican with red hair, if you can even imagine that. Louis C.K. is uh, a Mexican no, with red hair. <laughs> that's, that's true. Louis C.K. is probably the only Mexican with red hair in, like, the public eye. Yeah, but he's, like, kind yeah, of yeah. Mexican. Yeah, he's, I mean, we <laughs> can probably count him as a fake Mexican, I think. Brian, Brian is a real Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> and then, also, to... To kind of go on the other side of the of the kind of the new artist conversation, what do you think about a guy like Riff Raff from the Houston area? I, to my understanding, yeah, he's from around here. Riff Raff is Riff Raff is I don't even know. I don't know how you explain Riff Raff. He's like he's like if a cartoon came to life. That's what Riff Raff is, and it's kind of cool sometimes. Some of his stuff is fun and. But it's fun in moderation, like a like a piece yeah, of candy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, give me a, give me a little piece, and it's cool. But I don't want this to be like my whole diet. Do you think? And I mean, I have my own opinion on this, but do you think his whole thing is just? It's got to be just like an, a character, right? Or you think that's the real riffraff that that dude with the tattoos who's now like three hundred pounds of pure muscle? <laughs> No, it's got to be a character. I think it's a character. Yeah, I think yeah. He's a method actor. I think he goes home and he takes out his teeth and his glasses off, and then he's like, "I'm gonna eat a bowl of raisin bran and I'm gonna watch <laughs> Sports Center." Like, and just a normal guy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting how a lot of people like they just like they get so sucked into it that they're like, "No, this dude Riff Raff's just an idiot. Like, he's just really weird." It's like, I don't know. You think that like. You think someone could exist like that, and he's just famous on his own, actually making money? Like, I don't know. he's he's one of he's my probably I'd probably say he's my favorite figure in the rap game right now, just because he's such a freaking like like <laughs> I guess I don't I don't have enough historical context to to be like has this ever happened before? But I, <laughs> not to my knowledge has anyone ever done that, you know? Right, not not so thoroughly. You've had people who have been other characters, like Shock D. Sort of like a situation where he puts on his glasses and now he's he's humpy hump or whatever, but not in this sense. But again, I think with any of these guys, any of these these rappers, man or woman, doesn't matter. Like if they're famous, they deserve to be famous. J Cole deserves all of his successes. I don't even if I don't like him, like he figured it out. He deserves that. Everybody who who got to that level deserves it, and and it's. It's like a cool story by itself when you when you sit there and look at each of them. So what? It, so uh, Grandland is is obviously over. Um, you have the Rap Year book, which is a New York Times bestseller. Congratulations on that. Obviously, what is next for Chase Serrano? Next is I'm going to the UFC. I'm be a UFC fighter finally. Chase my <laughs> dream down. I'm just gonna do it. Uh, no, I, I'm not going to do that. You know, I tried to do that one time. I didn't try to be a UFC fighter, but I joined the UFC gym. And I got beat up, and I was like, F- these guys, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, not UFC. No, I'm, uh, right now I'm working on another book, but that won't be for that won't be out for like two years. It, will, it won't come out to 2017. Mm-hmm. So, but that's what I, like, when I get off the phone call and I go back in the office, that's what I'm going to be working on today. 
um, I'll be doing that. And then as far as other, like, writing jobs at other places, I'm not, I'm not certain yet. When the year, rap yearbook took off, we got a, like, there was a bunch more offers for work, but also for book stuff. And so that was cool. Um, so I'm not, like, trying to rush into anything. What it's been fascinating for me to watch, like how you've approached kind of marketing the rap yearbook in this really earnest kind of way on Twitter. Um, what was I mean? It seems like you're just kind of being yourself and kind of celebrating, like, hey, I, I wrote this book. Like, I hope you guys buy it. And everybody has seemed to like, <laughs> catch on that way. Yeah, that was the whole that was the game plan right there. When we did the coloring book, the, the plan was I thought in my head. If I get I get if I get Rolling Stone to write about it or if I get LA Times to write about it, that will be good enough. It'll sell, and it's and it did. It sold pretty well. It sold well enough that they wanted to do another book. With the yearbook, I said, let me try another way. Let me try, let me try to go hand-to-hand transactions like old-school rappers out the trunk of his car and see if I can't move some copies that way. Let me take advantage of of this platform we have on Twitter and it. it it worked out. It worked out really well. What is your kind of approach to Twitter? My approach is to just, same as anything else, like, just, if you're going to make a joke, go on there and make a joke and get out the way. Like, that's all. That's all I use it for. You got anything else for him, Taylor? Um, I don't know. I feel like, uh, I, I mean, you obviously it's like you have, like, thousands of people tweeting at you every day, but, like, I've been accused of I've been accused of being the police a couple times. I'm a I'm a little sour about that, and, and sometimes to me it almost sounds like you yourself might be just just the police in commoners' clothing here, as you as you shut down J Cole, <laughs> as you as you shut down all these things. I don't know. I think you I think you might be playing all of us. And this was in the con- like Taylor tweeted you about like Friday Night Lights and not. Like oh yeah, yeah. Well, Street. this was yeah. This was the the first one that you you made your uh your like your top seven I think it was Friday Night Lights characters. I think you you had street like in your top three, and I, I Jason just, Street. Yeah, I can't even like I don't even know how to begin putting Jason Street anywhere near the top. Just doesn't I make wish sense you would have to told me that at the beginning of this because I just would have got off the phone. <laughs> how do you how do you not like Jason Jason Street? Jason Street has his whole body broken, and it's still like the most fighting character on the whole show. Like, he never gives up. You, When you're watching that first, the first season and he takes Saracen out on the field and and he's he's going through his footwork with him and his passes and then he's trying to get, get him to throw that, like, 18-yard out. Yeah, yeah. And, Matt, and Matt's telling him, I can't do it, I can't do it. And then he – that was the, that's the first time we see when Street, he gets, like, real fired up and he's like, if you make this throw, they'll respect you. But if you make this one – they will fear you. And when that happens, like, I just burst into tears. My whole body got all tingly. Like, he, he does that, and, like, once or twice a season, he gets all fired up. He did it again when he was a car salesman, and he sold that car to that one guy who would never buy a car. He did it again when he was, like, with trying to get that girl to let him stay with a baby, his baby. Like, every so often he does a motivational speech. He did it when he was trying to recruit that one guy for the sports agency. Like, I just love a Jason Street motivational speech. I don't I know how we, you don't like him. I think we can all agree, though, that Julie Taylor is just the worst TV character ever, though. You know what? She's pretty bad. But I was talking to a guy named Mike Ayers, who's a writer. He used to be at Rolling Stone. Now he's at Wall Street Journal, if I'm not mistaken. He does, like, a lot of TV stuff. He's a really smart guy. And he brought up a really good point. He was telling me, like, yes, Julie Taylor is, like, you hate her. That's the whole point of Julie Taylor is, like, for her to just make you mad. But as far as, like, being a teenage girl, she really did, a, like, a fantastic job in that role. And and I feel like, like she really did. She was great. And I couldn't picture anybody else as Julie Taylor except for, except for her. I feel like that character, though, is, like, made to be so unlikable. And I think – I, I mean, the thing that I just hate about, the most about her is, that, like, I think Saracen is just too good for her. <laughs> Saracen was was like kind of a crybaby though, is the thing. But then and I so, don't know how. I mean, I'll, uh, sorry, you keep going and then I'll say mine. Okay. Yeah, I you know I didn't. I thought that she was like she's a strong girl and she had these like really big ideas. 
she made a bunch of mistakes, but it was always mistakes. She made her mistakes with conviction. She made her mistakes. Her mistakes were, were results of action. Saracens were always a result of not doing something. So, you know, pick your poison there. I, I just don't know how I like, and I know it's, it's very hard to, to say this about a character who's in a wheelchair, but like, Street is kind of a crybaby too. Like, there's so many like angsty ass street episodes where he's like, like when he's with that dude, um, when he starts playing in the, like the wheelchair, was it wheelchair basketball or was it, was it something right. else? No, it was powerball. Oh yeah, it was powerball. Yeah. When he, and he's just like, I don't know, and he, he, like he has all those I can't do it, I can't do it moments too, and it's and and then I feel like I feel like he's kind of corny when he does all those big speeches. Like I don't, I don't know. I guess I guess we'll never agree, <laughs> but yeah, how dare you? <laughs> well, uh, Shay, thanks so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about uh, you know a whole whole th- a whole whole bunch of things. All right, thanks, man. Thanks again to Shay Serrano for coming out to the show this week. Uh, if you want to follow Shay on Twitter, it's at Shay Serrano. Make sure to check out the Rap Yearbook. It's a really a great, fun reference book for hip-hop, and it's just incredibly well-researched and uh, is a really fun read. So make sure to go check that out on Amazon or any book retailer uh, near you. Uh, thanks for listening to the show again this week. Uh, we've got some pretty exciting guests over the next couple of weeks, so make sure to stay subscribed so you can listen to all of that uh, awesome content uh, coming up from Bartolopod over the next couple of weeks. Make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Bartolopod if you want to email the show on Twitter. Uh, it's at doing it for Bartolo at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at I am June Lee. Thanks again to the Hardball Times and Paul Swyden for hosting the show on uh, the website. And until next time, guys, I'll see you guys in the next one.